0: The following is paid programming brought to you by WT Wealth Management. Nothing we discuss should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational purposes only. Please do your own research and speak to an investment advisor or financial planner before making any investment decisions. Welcome to Intelligent Investing with Glenn Least. I'm your host, Jeff Orvitz. This week, we'll discuss slowing output in China and what that may mean for the market going forward, impacts of inflation, and our interest rates going to go up? Uh, And we're also going to talk about WT Wealth Management's in-house process for picking great companies. And with me is Glenn Least, Senior Investment Advisor, and John Hallner, who's Chief Investment Officer with WT Wealth Management. And you can learn more about John and Glenn by going to WTWealthManagement.com. Let's start with this, Glenn, and talk about what's going on in China. And, and you've been talking about slowing and output issues that we're seeing there.
1: Yeah, so China's always had you know traditionally high GDP numbers. And I was actually watching a documentary on China you know just you know, recently they sometimes they'll just build just for the sake of building not necessarily because they need it so i think they're coming to a point where you know there's really two things that are they're hitting them one is you know you can't keep up expansion at those high rates forever and then two they're actually running into you know energy issues where there's not enough energy to keep up their production they there's you know hitting a little bit of roadblocks there so you know if there's not enough oil and energy to you know continue their production it's going to slow a little bit so you know what we're talking about with China is is not these you know out of the park numbers every single year more of hey let's start to get back down to reality and so when we say about slowing that's what we're talking about is they're coming back down to you know more normal numbers as opposed to that You know, eight, nine, 10% GDP numbers that they've been consistently posting, which is, you know, crazy that they can continue posting that for, you know, it's not going to be indefinite. So that's when we're talking about slowing, is they're just kind of returning back to more normal GDP numbers.
0: Well, and John, if you look back to the late 80s when it was Japan everyone was talking about, and I think to echo what Glenn was saying here, Japan started pumping things into infrastructure and building the bridges to nowhere and things like that. Remember all that? And now they've been mired in trouble for a very long time so i don't know is history repeating itself just uh, kind of rhyming here maybe
2: i think it is i think china has deeper problems than a lot of uh, you know novice investors would realize at this point i mean construction spending has been about 25 percent of china's gdp and as glenn referred to and, and you can go over to youtube and watch some 60 minute segments that they had a few years ago is there's been needless building in China for almost a decade. And people have seen these ghost cities that they've created where they've built 50, 60 story high rise condominium buildings. And I'm talking dozens of them. And there's not a single inhabitant in them. And they've been financed for the government to keep working and keep people busy. Um, most of them are uninhabitable uh, they don't have electricity. They don't have indoor plumbing. The concrete's very suspect. You can almost knock an entire building over, you know, with one swift kick. So there's been, you know, I think the the global experts have always been a little suspects of China's seven, eight, nine percent GDP numbers, and always thought it was a more modest number, maybe like five or six percent, which you know was still a strong number considering over the last twenty years the U.S. has averaged about two and a half percent GDP. Um, but but now that they're running into uh, energy hurdles, electricity, they're actually doing rolling blackouts to the factories. Um, Xi Jinping has cracked down on a lot of uh, dissidents within the country. Um, they've actually, you know, w- removed more westernization than they probably had, you know, ten years ago. So there's a, I think there's a, a an underlying. Um, sort of a disenfranchising of the average Chinese citizen, and that's why the government's cracking down a little harder. Yeah, it's cool. easy to forget they are a communist country, and I always encourage people to go Google communism and really understand what that means.
0: All right, let's uh, let's switch gears back to the U.S. and uh, the Federal Reserve and interest rates. I I was seeing that one of and I I forgot to write his name down. One of the I call him the Fed heads. One of the Fed heads admitted that we are in long-term inflation and that this isn't quite as transitory as they thought. Uh, And that's what and I've been talking about this for a while. Uh, Our rate hikes now on the table um, especially if you're in longer term inflationary cycle. And, and, um, uh, Glenn, let's start with you. I mean, can, can we even handle interest rate hikes? Will they have to try to do it to tame inflation some, I mean, your, your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we've been actually talking about inflation of the last, you know, six months on the show, and we've been kind of going back and forth. We, one part of us was like, yeah, it's transitory. And then the other part of us was thinking, well, maybe not so much. I mean, we've got a lot of factors that, you know are going on that points to inflation being around for a while such as we've got a lot of spending we've got a lot of supply and demand issues you know and those are really not helping inflation be temporary and so i think they i think inflation's going to be here for a while and and two of the ways that they can go about taming inflation is one is they raise the interest rates, you know, which is one we've talked about that in the show. And then the second is they reduce the amount of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that they're buying each month. And so, the, the kind of their first game plan is is to reduce that $120 billion a month that they're buying and kind of see how that goes and, you know, kind of do it very slowly. So, they'll kind of first start with that. And then, you know, from there, you know, look at raising rates. Now, the question is, how will the markets Uh, Respond, You know, traditionally, uh, you know, raising interest rates is actually short term kind of seems like a bad thing. but long term is actually a good thing because that means your economy is growing. You've got, you know, rising costs. You've got, you know, economic expansion. So you're actually trying to raise interest rates to, you know, kind of cool things off a little bit. So short term, I could see the markets kind of being a little bit. Uh, uneasy with any kind of rate heights or changes, and maybe for, you know, half a month or a month or so, the markets, you know, kind of digest that and trade off. But then long term, you know, we've actually seen that raising rates is actually a good thing for the equity markets and good thing long term. So, it's just, I think it's all about perspective of how we look at it, Um and it's probably going to be something that is necessary moving forward. I don't like it, but, you know, it's going to be necessary that we eventually need to figure out how to, you know, pair back inflation and how to combat that because, you know, right now it's, it's, you know, everywhere we go, it seems like everything's more expensive and it's, you know, it's really just taking money off of the everyday person's, you know, budget, you know, we're the ones that are, you know, paying the cost for the higher goods. And so we're we're definitely feeling it as your average Americans
0: Yeah. And John, the the hidden uh, tax, the stealth tax of inflation, what's also interesting is consumer price index. I think like a third of it is, is that rental, adjustment um, formula that they use. They do the survey where they call and hey, John, if you were to rent your house, even though you occupy it, what would you rent it for? And I I think that you probably would say less than it actually would rent for. So I I think that it may be even a little higher than I'm pretty sure it's pretty higher than what they actually think in, in the CPI numbers.
2: Yeah, you know, what confuses people is they see so many different numbers. You can see the CPI, you can see the uh the expenditure index, some of them uh remove food and energy, which is where we've seen some of our highest inflation numbers with uh gas at the gas pump and and food in the grocery store. So, uh, I I've come to the camp where I do believe inflation is becoming a problem, and it looks like it's going to become a persistent problem. And unfortunately, it's probably going to take that intervention to to cool it down, and that means that they'll probably accelerate their tapering process. I think the initial map out was anywhere from 10 to 12 months they would taper off the $120 billion a month of bond buying that they're doing. And then once they get through that, then they'll look at interest rates. I'm quite confident that we're 12 months away from them actually moving the Fed funds rate. Um, And we'll just have to monitor inflation closely. It's bad for American households. There was a study that came out this morning that inflation is costing adults Per adult, about two hundred and seventy-five dollars a month more. Yep. So, for for a husband and wife that are living on their own, it's it's an excess of five hundred dollars a month that's costing them for the same goods and services pre-pandemic as that they're paying now. And and, and you know that's a big number. The lower you are on the social economic scale, if you're a husband and wife making sixty or seventy thousand dollars combined, five hundred dollars is a lot of money. Um, so you always have to keep that in mind. And there's nothing that erodes consumer confidence more than
0: inflation. I heard someone mm-hmm. say something like, well, food inflation isn't mm-hmm. bad. Um, you know, just don't buy chicken, beef or or pork. <laughs> it's like, what's left? <laughs> Fish? You know, so... or,
1: milk or, or milk or eggs. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> exactly.
0: You're listening to Intelligent Investing with Glenn Least. Call Glenn Least for a complimentary consultation at 928-225-2474. There's no obligation. Just call 928-225-2474 or go to WTWealthManagement.com. And when we come back, Glenn and John and I will discuss market volatility, the energy sector and REITs, what is a REIT, and their in-house process for picking great companies. Back in just a minute. You're listening to Intelligent Investing with Glenn Least, call Glenn Least for a complimentary consultation at 928-225-2474. There's no obligation. Just call 225-2474 or go to wtwealthmanagement.com. I'm here with John Halner, who's the chief investment officer. And Glenn Lee, Senior Investment Advisor with WT Wealth Management. You get more information by going to WTWealthManagement.com. And uh, Glenn, let's, let's start with you on this one. We've talked in the past about the difference between market volatility and market risk. And right now we're seeing a lot of volatility, especially in tech stocks. But I guess, is it market volatility or are we talking market risk here?
1: You know, I think we're talking about market volatility here, because if we look at some of these <clears throat> tech stocks, you know, maybe 20 years ago, tech stocks were not as integral <clears throat> to our daily way of life. Whereas now, you know, trying to live without Amazon or Apple or Google or Facebook or you know, some of these tech companies is, is becoming increasingly harder, almost a near impossible, one might argue. So I would say these, these companies, while they may fluctuate in price at all, we're not going to stop using them in our daily life. In fact, if anything, you know, they're they're such a you know staple of our everyday life that it's gonna be hard for us to get away from them. So <clears throat> I don't think they're at risk of going out of style. I do think that long term, you know, we can see some price fluctuation, you know, but overall they're still good solid plays. They're they're not going anywhere. We're not gonna stop using these companies any less than we are today. In fact, if there's more Regulations or pandemic issues, we we may adopt them even further into our lives. So I I I don't think they're any they're not going anywhere. I think we're talking about volatility here, you know, as opposed to market risk.
0: Well, John, maybe we should back up a second and explain tech stocks. Talk about that category, that class of stocks.
2: Yeah, I I think unfortunately, tech stocks is probably an old world now. I mean, you know, it it, it was really about. Fledgling technology stocks, when you go back 20 years to like 2000, they were things for the most part that people really didn't understand. You know, when you talked about the internet or you talked about, you know, cloud computing, you know, 20 years ago, these were very uh, foreign concepts to people. Technology stocks today, there's many companies that people would classify, like some people might feel like Amazon is a technology stock. They're really not. I mean, you know, technology is so embedded in everything that we do today that when you look at the companies that most people touch every day, it could be T-Mobile, it could be Verizon, it could be, you know, Amazon, it could be Google. In a lot of ways, these things have really become utilities more than technology stocks. Anytime something has become so entrenched in your life that you can't live without it, it's really become more of a utility or a consumer staple than a technology stock. Um, so I, I think, you know, with everything, adoption is slow to change in terms of terminology. And we've kind of coined a new phrase that we call that they're uh, technology staples. So if you have something like Netflix or something like Roku, it's really just replacing the prior cable access that you had. So we don't really think of those as technology stocks, but instead they're just a consumer staple that people are using to view TV shows in a different way than we did 20 years ago.
0: Well, some financial advisors are recommending that investors should be shedding their investments in in tech stocks uh, and and investing more in the energy sector and REITs, real estate investment trusts. Uh, John, maybe I can get you first to explain um, maybe the energy sector real quick. But but what the heck is a REIT?
2: REITs are pretty easy to understand when you when you think about. You know, REITs are, are, are a physical asset, so it could be. Um, Multi-user multi-user housing. It could be, you know, a small strip mall that you drive by that has a lot of doctors and dentists in them. It could be something as large as a REIT that specializes in super regional malls like Fashion Square in Scottsdale or you know the Fashion Show Mall in Las Vegas. So REITs have been sliced and diced over the last ten years, so you can buy a REIT that specializes in anything from. Uh, They acquire properties where cell phone towers are standing, all the way to they acquire properties that own nothing but Circle K's and gas stations. Um, Typically, when there's a lot of inflation in the air, people will like a hard asset like real estate. It tends to be a good inflation hedge, much like gold has been historically. So that's why a lot of advisors are recommending that. In terms of energy, it's not something we usually have a significant investment in. The energy sector is only 3% of the S&P 500. It's really dominated just by a few players. And we traditionally don't like sectors like that where price is manipulated based on supply and demand. Energy trade trades in such vast ways just on how OPEC has decided they're going to pump oil out of the ground next month. And we'd rather have investments that we can really evaluate and figure out if they're a good investment or a bad investment. And it simply isn't manipulated by supplier demand. All
0: right. And we're talking with uh, Glenn Least and John Hollner of WT Wealth Management. And you can check it out at wtwealthmanagement.com. Get more info at wtwealthmanagement.com. And Glenn, let me let me ask you this. We've spent a lot of time talking about inflation um pr- pretty much every week for months now uh it continues to be a major concern what are you telling clients when they're calling in to ask you about it and, and with their concerns
1: yeah so when clients ask me about inflation one of the, the first questions that you know they ask is is this a short term thing is this a long term thing you know how are we viewing inflation is it here to stay Um, Because if it's just short-term, you know, then, you know, maybe we make some, you know, minor adjustments. But if it's long-term, then, you know, we definitely need to be having the conversation of how do we beat inflation. And that's what most of our clients are concerned about is, you know, how do they continue to grow their portfolio above and beyond inflation? And the conversation a lot of times focuses in on just education to say, hey, if you're in a – Mostly bond or interest sensitive portfolio, and you 're only getting two and a half three percent, but yet inflation's rising at four percent or five percent every year, we need to be in investments that could really continue to grow past inflation and one of the best places to do that is is going to be in stock ownership and so If you think about a company like Apple, if it costs them more money to create an iPhone. Uh, they don't just make less profits; they usually pass along that cost to us as the consumer. So instead of the iPhone costing us eleven hundred, maybe it costs twelve hundred. So, you know, stock companies are usually a great place to beat inflation because they tend to perform well, even during inflationary environments. Um, other ways they can do it is, you know, maybe we build in some real estate investment trusts, some REITs like we talked about. Those are great ways to also beat inflation. But most of it is making sure they're in the right risk spectrum. You know, they're in enough stocks that they can actually do better than inflation. So that's usually what, you know, most of my conversations are based around is, hey, how do we structure your portfolio in a way where you can beat inflation, but also feel very comfortable with what we're investing in. You know, We don't want to be trying to hit a bunch of home runs just to beat inflation, but make the clients nervous and you know have them not sleep well at night. So that's why we've constructed portfolios where they really know and understand the companies that they're investing in that are really integral to their way of life, but they're mm-hmm. also companies that are growing and beating inflation. So that's usually what the conversation centers around is how do we you know, dial in your portfolio in a way that, you know, we can beat inflation and still have the client sleep well at night.
0: John, let me, let me get your take on this. I mean, what do you think are some really good solid plays right now? Uh, companies you're looking at?
2: Well, like I said earlier, we really like companies that you can't live without. And I always rattle off some names like, you know, Adobe for one, which is a software manufacturer that a lot of people use every single day. There's really no way to live your life in, in the modern business world. Without Adobe, one of our other companies that we love is Microsoft. Same way, almost every single person touches Microsoft in some way. Another name that we've loved forever is Google. Um, you know, the average person—and this will blow people's minds—uses Google to perform some sort of search fifteen times a day. Um, And and Google is really just a massive advertising mechanism where companies of all shapes and sizes are paying them for their search optimization services and and capturing that. Another huge arm of Google is YouTube, another huge, I mean, I'm talking multi-billion dollar revenue generator from the ads that are placed on YouTube every single day. So as Glenn alluded to, we're not a proponent of just owning the S&P 500 and having 500 companies that you don't know what they do or or the condition that we're in. On our average uh, individual equity portfolio, we own anywhere from 40 to 50 names. And these are selected by our investment committee. Um, we spend probably 25 to 30 hours on every single name before we decide to put it into the portfolio. And we own things like Target and Walmart and Home Depot and Costco and T-Mobile and Verizon and CBS and waste management and, and really things that the average American just in the course of their daily life touches several times a day or at least several times a week. And those are some of our favorite names.
0: Well, Glenn, let's uh, wrap up with this because uh, John mentioned this and WT Wealth Management actually has a unique process uh, with your investment committee. Uh, It's almost like your own in-house mutual fund. Maybe just quickly walk us through that process that you guys use.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So. Back when we started this, we call it our culturally significant equities portfolio. About seven or eight years ago, we really just started with a clean slate to say, "What are the the companies that we use every single day that we really can't live without, that are really going to be durable and grow, you know, have a lot of growth potential, no matter what is going on in the world?" And so we started looking at, you know, just sitting in our coffee shop, you know, we're like, okay, well, I I hop on my, you know, my Apple device. I log into Microsoft. I use Google to search. Maybe I pop over to Amazon. I order some stuff online. I use my Visa or MasterCard to get, you know, the order placed. or maybe I use PayPal or Square for the payment transaction. Well, how do those goods and services get to our house? Well, obviously someone's got to deliver them. So FedEx and UPS start to become attractive. And so we, we start walking through that process of what are all these companies that are really forward-thinking and are part of our daily life but are still you know large and growing still so those are some of the other names we named off like adobe you know we if you want to open up a pdf on your computer there's really not another option you know besides you know adobe software and their business model is kind of genius because they charge you a flat you know monthly rate of seven or eight bucks a month you know for their subscription service and they don't allow you to just buy the software anymore a lot of these newer companies that you know, have a subscription service tied to them and it makes their revenue, we call it very sticky, meaning, you know, once you have a subscriber paying seven, eight, nine, ten dollars a month, they're probably going to continue paying that. And it's almost more of a hassle to cancel it than it is to keep the service, which, you know, one of the other things I think about is that the, one of the local gyms that does that, it's the Planet Fitness, they just charge 10 bucks a month and most people, even if they don't use the service, are like, well, I'll use it next month or I'll, I'll, I'll use it eventually and for $10 is it even worth canceling, whereas a lot of these companies that we use, we're using them every single day. So that's part of the process and then as John alluded to, there's a tremendous amount of time and energy that goes into thinking about each individual company because we'll maybe have 100 to 150 names in our sandbox that we're kind of monitoring and at any given time, maybe 50 of them actually make it into the portfolio. So there's a, a tremendous amount of research that goes into looking at each one of the names and then you know deciding, are they still culturally relevant today? Are they still significant to our way of life or are they new opportunities? Like a good example is we added in Coinbase to our portfolio a couple of weeks back as we saw the... Growth of cryptocurrencies, you know, really take off. Some different municipalities and governments are making it nationalized currency, and so we wanted to have a play in that sector without actually having to bet directly on, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum or, or that sort of thing. So, you know, we're always kind of forward-thinking with our portfolios, and it changes each year and over the course of the year. You know, as as our trends change and as how we adopt technology changes, we're also looking at new names too. Um, so, it, it's an ongoing, evolving process, and I thought that was very unique that that's being done locally here in-house and we're, we're always forward-looking as far as that goes so it's a very unique portfolio that we have to offer
0: all right and yeah i wonder how many people have those subscriptions that you just yeah it's not worth deleting right there's we probably yeah. all have a lot of them so gentlemen i appreciate it and uh we will talk again next week have a good week all
2: right thanks, Jeff. thanks. great weekend everybody
0: when you work with Glenn Least, his investment committee leverages over a century of combined experience to grow your money, not your fees. And they invest their personal savings the same exact way you invest your money. Call Glenn Least for a complimentary consultation at 928-225-2474. That's 928 928- 225-2474. There's no obligation. Give Glenn a call. 928-225-2474. Or you can also go to wtwealthmanagement.com. Tune in next week at the same time for another edition of Intelligent Investing on 971, The Big Talker. We'll see you soon.